0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 55. Today we're asking the question, are total recordable injury rates statistically invalid? And if so, what does that mean practically? Let's get started. Hi everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it today. So Drew, we've got something a little bit different today from what we normally review, so what's today's question? David,
1: this is a little bit of a quick turnaround, which is partly due to the interest of the paper and partly because our ability to record episodes in advance is getting crunched as we come up to a busy time of the year. But there's a paper that's been making the rounds on social media that has attracted interest and that we were interested in ourselves. It's by the Construction Safety Research Alliance. Uh, The lead author is Dr. Matthew Hallowell. And the title for the paper is The Statistical Invalidity of TRIR as a Measure of Safety Performance. So we thought rather than doing anything sophisticated, we'd just pick up the paper and talk about what we think about it. We'll uh, give you a bit of a summary of the paper, talk about some of its key findings, discuss what we consider to be sort of strengths and weaknesses, and what we think the findings mean in practice.
0: Andrew, I think for as long as I've been working with you, you've had a working Paper sitting there unfinished. I think the title is something like We Don't Kill Enough People. So, is this a paper that you, I suppose, has someone beaten you to the punch with a paper that you're intending to publish at some point in time?
1: Absolutely, David. I think I had the cooler title out of the two, but they've written the paper I wanted to write and they've worked out a couple of ways of explaining things that I was finding hard to explain. And they solved the big problem I had, which is that. Some of the things about uh, injury rates are actually really well-known statistically. They're not actually new findings. So it's a bit hard to publish academic papers where you're stating what to academics is the obvious. And so they've come up with a really neat solution, which was just, yeah, forget about the academic publication, just send it straight out to industry as a paper that they've done themselves. So yeah, I'm a little bit jealous. I definitely I can hardly say I've been scooped about something that people have been complaining about for 30 years. but yeah, I, I wish I'd written this paper myself.
0: Yeah, look and I think if, and we'll talk a little bit about the format of a of a sort of an industry white paper or uh, you know a, a white paper and how it then you know is more accessible to certain audiences and I think the the authors of this paper clearly had an audience in mind when they were choose this particular format to publish so so drew. Do you want to describe a little bit about the nature of the paper? It was published by the Construction Safety Research Alliance, which is sort of an industry academia collaboration. So do you want to talk a little bit about the the paper and what these, how these sorts of alliances work and where they get their funding from?
1: So I, I don't know a lot about this particular group, but it appears to be a structure that works, seems to work a little bit more successfully in America than elsewhere Where industry pools together in a consortium, so a number of industries that are interested in research and have like-minded problems and questions, and perhaps go to researchers, they pool the funding, and then they use that to sponsor particular projects that all of those companies are interested in. The advantage is that the funding goes directly to questions that the companies are concerned about. You don't have the hassles of having grant applications and competitive funding, which usually leads to higher quality projects, but projects that are less steered directly towards the industry needs. The publication is what we call a white paper. So the idea is it's been self-published. It's publicly available. There's no paywall. Anyone can read it. But the downside is that it hasn't been peer-reviewed. Um, now, we've talked a bit before on the podcast, David, about how the peer-review process works. And the fact that something hasn't been peer-reviewed doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It just means that it hasn't been scrutinized. So there's a slightly higher obligation on readers to think about the methods and to think about the types of things that peer-reviewers would look at rather than trusting that someone has looked at that for them. I should say that a version of the paper is being published in a journal called Professional Safety. But even though Professional Safety is technically peer-reviewed, it's an industry journal. This is not intended as an academic type
0: publication. One of the advantages, Drew, I think is that a white paper, you can write for your audience. So you don't have to write in a heavily kind of academic tone that you'd be normally writing for, for peer reviewers of academic papers. So I think it makes the it provides the opportunity to make the content a bit more accessible for an audience that's not an, a non-academic audience so and people see this who, who read the paper and i'm sure some of our listeners will have already read it and others can just click on it in the show notes and get open access to it uh but it sort of means that we have to really look i think if we're going to look at it critically drew we have to sort of look who the authors are and you know are they authors who have some i suppose academic credibility if you like so we can trust to some level the, the information that they're communicating without that peer review process. So do you want to give us some uh, some insight into who the authors are? Okay,
1: so, so the lead author is Professor Matthew Hallowell. Um, I believe I miscalled him earlier, Dr. Hallowell. So uh, he works at an American university, University of Colorado. So his title is Professor. Um, he's published a lot of... Interestingly, almost entirely in construction journals and conferences, rather than in the key safety journals. I don't know quite why that is. It tends to be that people sort of find their niche where they're comfortable publishing and where they know what sort of peer reviews and turnaround they'll get and tend to publish in a narrow slice of places. Another author is Professor Matt Jones, who is a psychologist. Uh, his expertise in, ex- in experimental psychology and learning systems So reading through the lines, I'm thinking that he's the one who really knows his stuff when it comes to statistics. So he was brought in as an author to provide the sort of internal peer review on the statistical arguments. And then the other authors are senior people in industry. So these are the people who understand how injury rates are collected and used in practice. So it's pretty much, David, I think exactly the sort of list of authors you'd want. A
0: safety expert, a statistics expert, and some safety industry people. So Drew, let's go... First impressions. So I think for me, we'll go through the the how the research was done and and all of the findings. But I think just to spoil a few things and things that really jumped out and made a lot of I suppose it, it was good to see the the statistical work that had gone into confirming things that I assumed that the relationship between injuries and fatalities or the or the lack of a relationship between injuries and fatalities, um, and and what that means practically, we'll talk about uh, throughout throughout the podcast, and then just just the randomness of movements in T R I R. And um and and so what that means and doesn't mean for how we can even think about using injury rates in any way to understand the safety of our businesses. So there are a few things that it, I suppose it wasn't nice to see because it gives us a real problem in safety, but it um it, it was good to see such a large body of data, you know, statistically show, you know, confirm those sorts of things that you know I I, I think we tend to believe.
1: Yeah, I also like the fact that. Even though this paper gives a pretty damning account of injury rates, and the conclusion really should be that no one with credibility should use them, but they, do, they don't quite go that far in their recommendations, and they do provide a couple of fallback positions, which I think provide a practical compromise for people who have no choice but to report injury rates and are looking for ways to escape from some of the trap we've got ourselves in where everyone reports them, so everyone else has to report them.
0: So Drew, let's talk about a summary. So, so our, I'm, I'm we will make a few assumptions. We'll make the assumption that our listeners are familiar with total recordable injury rate. But, I mean, what we're really talking about here is the number of injuries that you have in your organization over the number of hours that you're that you work. And depending on where you are in the world, it might be how many injuries per hundred thousand hours, per two hundred thousand hours, per million hours. But really, it, it it kind of doesn't matter. It's just the the rate of incidents per the hours that you work in your organization. And so how do do organizations use these injury injury rates, Drew?
1: So in the the paper, they've got a list of different types of reporting and decision-making that use injury rates. So they say companies use it to report results. They use it to benchmark against their peers. This is saying, you know, this is what our injury rate is. This is what someone else in a similar industry has as their injury rate. Uh, They use it to pre-qualify and select contractors. Uh, David, I don't know about you, I've seen that directly myself, Our contractors actually have to sort of fill out on the form, what is your total recordable injury rate over the past two years? Yep. Evaluate managers, which is not one I'd heard of before, but I guess makes sense if your injury rate goes up, the safety manager gets a slap
0: on the wrist. Oh, look, I think used used in reward schemes, uh, many organizations, many, many, many organizations uh, would apply financial bonuses for managers would promote managers who'd been seen to reduce injury rates in certain areas, would demote managers and change managers who'd been seen not to improve recordable injury rates sufficiently. I think it's very much used as an individual evaluation method.
1: To track the impact of safety initiatives. So this is you know, knowing whether what you're currently doing for safety is working or not, and whether it's making a difference. Uh, they say it may influence insurance premiums, it may influence public opinion and be scrutinized by investors. And I've noticed in Australia, at least, there's an increasing move to have safety statistics included in annual reports, at least for publicly traded companies. And some companies definitely use their injury rate as a sort of flagship on their marketing materials.
0: Yeah, very much so, Drew. In sustainability reporting, in the GRI and others, it's, it's quite a prominent indicator. And I think, you know, our common criticisms would be like we, we talk a lot about lagging indicators. We talk about it being reactive. We talk about it not differentiating between injuries of different severities, this minor injuries versus fatalities. And these criticisms, Drew, have been, I mean, I I think I might have mentioned on the podcast before is there's a paper that was published in Safety Science that I like. in I think it was 1993 or 1994, which is has a title of something like, you know, thankfully, we've seen the end of using lost time injury rates as a measure of safety performance, which was the start of the real positive performance indicator movement, which is what, 26, 27 years ago. And so, like you said, this is not new. It might be a new way to look at a large data set and look at some statistics. It's not new, but this paper also does what we haven't done in the last 25 years, which is a line behind some other kind of alternative measurement. Um, And I think we'll get to that at the end of the podcast.
1: One thing they don't mention that I think definitely is worth a mention whenever we talk about injury rates is the problem of how much the rate gets distorted by both reporting and classification of injuries, that it's quite possible in many organisations that total recordable injuries is an imaginary figure that is so distorted by what gets reported and what gets classified as work-related or not work-related. But in this particular paper, they're not concerned with the fact that it's lagging or about under-reporting or that it doesn't differentiate between injuries of different severities. So if you're arguing with anyone on LinkedIn and they're making comments about those things with injury rates... That's not actually what this paper is about at all. This paper almost takes as a given that we've got good data. And it says, given that we've actually got good data about injuries, these are still the problems that exist with total recordable injury rates. So, David, are we okay to sort of move on and start talking a little bit about those statistics?
0: Yeah, tell us about the statistics, Drew, because I must admit, some of the statistics I understood, but I was still, even for a white paper, I was out of my depth when I was reading through some of it. And um, it was probably the most technical white paper that I've that I've seen, but I think it, the argument that was being made, the statistical argument was being made necessitated the the heavy statistics. So if, you, if you're happy to explain them, Drew, I'm happy to let you.
1: Okay. So, so let's start off with the very basic concept of validity. There's two types of validity that we care about when we're measuring safety. There's construct validity, which is, are we measuring the thing that we think we're measuring? And then there's statistical validity. And statistical validity is often spoken about a lot by academics and really misunderstood by practitioners. And so the sort of common misunderstanding is people think that things can be good up to a point and then they become statistically valid and then they're extra good. Whereas the reality is that statistical validity is like the minimum bar for something to have any meaning at all. Anything that doesn't have statistical validity has no practical use, no matter what its other things. So a common example is if one politician is ahead of another politician in an opinion poll and we say that difference isn't statistically meaningful or it's within the margin of error. We're not saying one politician is only slightly ahead. We're saying they are so close that we don't know who is ahead. When we say that an indicator has no statistical validity, we're saying that when it goes up, the reality might be going down. And when it goes down, the reality might be going up. It's so close that we don't actually know what's going on from the indicator. And then if, so if uh, TRIFIR, or uh, as they're called in this paper, TRIR isn't statistically valid, but we're using it to make decisions, then we don't actually know whether a company is getting safer or getting less safe, even though the numbers might be appearing to go up or go down. It means if we're using it to compare contractors, we don't know which one has the better safety record, even though one has got a lower number. It means we don't know whether the safety manager deserves their bonus and is doing a good job, even though the score's gone down. It means we don't know which safety initiatives are working. Um, And you can't get out of this by saying, oh, yeah, we use recordable injuries, but it's only one of the indicators we use and we use a package of indicators. If it's not statistically valid, it should have no part in any package of measures. If something doesn't have statistical validity, that's it, it has no use as an indicator. And so that's the question they're mostly asking in this paper. They ask a couple of other questions, but statistical validity is the big one. You just can it do at all what it says on the tin.
0: And so to achieve that statistical validity, Drew, with all these statistical tests, for someone who doesn't spend a lot of time with these sorts of heavily quantitative statistics, what we're looking for is sufficient patterns in the data to have confidence that things are moving, uh, moving around in some sort of predictable and reliable way. So we can see that. So 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 what. The real problem here is just the, re- the sheer randomness of the movement of the numbers.
1: Yes, exactly. So the paper starts off with a description of some stuff. that This is the bit that I'm really jealous of, because this is the bit that I wanted to put out in a paper. And you can only be told the same stories to me so many times before it gets boring. Um, but it comes originally from a book called The Law of Small Numbers, which was used to calculate. Uh, How many soldiers in the Prussian army would get kicked to death by horses? It's a sort of famous story in statistics to do with, I'm I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, but they're like uh, Benui decisions leading to Poisson distributions. Uh, So safety data doesn't work according to the normal bell curve distributions that we're used to seeing in other types of statistics. They follow these Poisson distributions. And so first thing I saw when reading this paper is, yes, they've got it right, just the fundamentals that so many people miss using the wrong family of statistics. And so the original use of Poisson distributions was using 20 years of data from 14 Calvary Corps. So that gives you sort of some indication of the large numbers you need to be able to make statistical claims about very small numbers of people getting hurt. So they've got this figure, um, it's figure one in the paper if you're reading it for yourself. I checked with Matthew, there's actually an error in this figure that it's supposed to be either percents or decimals, but not both. But So read these as percents. And it gives some idea of the variability. So it says that if your injury rate is truly one, so this is the actual underlying risk that people face. 37% of the time you'll get zero injuries. 37% of the time you'll get one injury. of the time you'll get two injuries, 6% of the time you'll get three injuries, and the rest of the time you'll get more than three injuries. So even if you've got just a constant level of safety, the numbers you're getting can easily roll around anywhere between zero and three, which is why if you see your figures sort of going from zero to one to two to three, back to zero, up to six, that's just normally what you'd expect with a
0: constant risk. So your thoughts, David? Yeah, look, I think I I took me a while to get my head around why if you've got a <laughs> and this is why I probably had the bell curve in my head, why if your TRIR is truly one, then why you wouldn't have the same chance of zero and two. And that was kind of my limited understanding of the statistics. But then the more I looked at, it, the more it made absolute um sense to me. And I think that's the sort of range that we need to be that we'll talk a little bit about later, which is that there's no point saying my TRI is one. You know, the, the answer is probably my TRI is probably somewhere between 0 and 3, but I don't really know where it is.
1: And that's the answer that they give, is they say that we should think of these things as ranges rather than as point estimates. So if you think it's 1, then actually it's really a confidence interval somewhere between around 0.2 and 5.7. And so that's what we should say. Instead of saying it was 1 this month, we should say it's somewhere between 0.2 and 5.7. And then if that's the range, then if next time it's also within that same range then it hasn't gone up or down. It's just within the same outcome that you'd expect for a fairly constant risk. So they also give some fairly useful ballparks for how many worker hours you'd need to get a more precise estimate, which I think is a really good way of explaining it. It's basically saying, as we work more and more hours, we can get more and more precise estimates, but you've got to work a heck of a lot of hours to narrow it down, even to use one decimal place. So to be accurate enough to make a one decimal place difference. So this is instead of claiming that it is one claiming that it's something like 1.1 or 1.2 to claim it that precisely, you need around 300 million hours of worker exposure for each calculation. So unless you have that many worker hours, you shouldn't be reporting things to one decimal place to report it to two decimal places. You need 30 billion worker hours. Um, so I thought that was just like a really good way of explaining that, you know, if you're putting decimal places, you're just talking nonsense. It's can't possibly that be that precise.
0: I think many of our listeners in many organizations would report their TRIRs to two decimal places um and not have thirty billion hours and just the quick maths. I mean, one person works two thousand hours a year. So for three hundred million hours, you you need to report a year of statistics for fifteen hundred people to have some chance of a point one decimal. So yeah, look, I think I think Drew, um our reporting clearly inside organizations doesn't match the t- statistics. And I'll be sure, maybe I'll ask you now, I'll be interested in your view, I did try with one organization at one point when I was seeing as chase, you know, TRIR a four, and then the next year wanting it to be three and the next year wanting it to be two, and then it went up to 2.5 and then it was bad. And then we wanted it down to one. We were talking to that organization about just going, you know, if it's under five who cares or, and so, Anywhere between zero and five, I mean, I suppose that doesn't quite work if it's at the upper end and then it could be somewhere between two and 10, you wouldn't know. But definitely that mindset I was trying to get in that part of that organisation was to say, who cares if it's one or two or three or four, just pick a big range and say, look, if it's anywhere under five, we don't care anymore whether it bounces up and down. Does that sort of match some of the findings here or, or would you want to be more specific about your range?
1: Sorry, David, I've actually got two conflicting thoughts about this. Because the first one is that if your actual risk is fairly high, it can still bounce down below that level of five. So that still could be quite misleading. But I think if you had a like a genuine target of one, and that was your long-term average, then it would be, really be quite reasonable to say, okay, we know that it's going to bounce around. We know that for a steady risk, it's going to be easily up to six. So that's our warning sign, is if ever we get above six then actually there's probably something going on because there's a really low chance of that happening by chance and you could do a similar thing if you thought your av- long-term average was five you could say okay we're going to expect it to go around anywhere from zero to ten but if it's above ten that's our warning sign
0: And i think that sort of matches what some people and, and i don't think we're advocating necessarily measuring it but we also understand the practicalities of how hard it is to remove these numbers from your organization and you know maybe we just just restate that as a practical takeaway. Like if you've got a really low triffer of one, not getting worried until it hits five and having your organization understand that. And if you're setting key risk indicators around things, again, pick a number that's double what, five times or double and just set some limits and really pay no attention to the number at all until it hits some, some limit that is, I suppose, less likely to be about statistical chance.
1: Yeah, they, they make a suggestion that we might talk about again when we get to practical takeaways which is just always when you report it, report it with those confidence intervals. So just get into the habit of saying it is somewhere between this and this, and the most likely place for it to be is the particular number. And if we can get into those habits of using statistical language correctly, we can just start creating that impression that these are ranges rather than very accurate numbers. So the second thing they do in the paper, David, is a calculation of the amount of randomness. Now, I don't think it would be particularly constructive for either of us to try to sort of explain in detail how you do the randomness calculations. But basically, all the stuff so far doesn't actually need real trifer figures to do the calculations they've done. This is just a raw fact about the types of distributions. But for this bit, they have a lot of data from the companies that they're working with. So they've got a number of companies, lots and lots of months of data. And so they can look at comparatively how these things move around within a single company and how they compare between companies. And they can say, you know, is there any indication that these differences are due to some underlying factor or trend that is moving the rates around? And their conclusion is that if you try to explain... Uh, so the idea is you use a model that goes something like there's an underlying variable that causes it, plus there is an amount of randomness. And we ask how much of it can be explained by differences in the underlying variable? How much of it can be explained by the randomness? Um, And their conclusion was that almost all of it is explained by randomness. So if you have two two, two TRIRs and they're different, that's mostly just because of random movement about. It's not because of some fundamental difference between the two months or the two companies
0: or the two situations. And they put a number on that, Drew this number of ninety-six to ninety-eight percent, which means I mean that's a that's a high percentage of saying this is all of the movements of all of the TRIRs in all of the data is basically ninety-six or ninety-eight percent of all of that movement. We can sort of say is random. That feels like a very big number.
1: Well, well, one way to think about it is think of this as signal and noise. So if it's ninety-five to ninety-eight percent, your sig- signal is two to five percent, and the noise over the top is all of the rest of the movement so if you're trying to listen to a radio with that much noise and that much signal signal you'd just be hearing white noise
0: so that randomness i think is really important statistically for us to understand so you know what happens next month when the tris are trir is up and what happens next month when it's down and the second the second thing that they they went into some detail around was this relationship between recordable injuries and fatalities and sort of draw this through the same conclusion that couldn't really find any statistical relationship between those recordable injuries and fatalities. And the white paper even refers back to, I suppose, some of the more recent work, and we've had debates about Heinrich's work and triangles and pyramids, depending on on what you want to call them. But really, this, this big statistical testing sort of shows that you can't look at your recordable injuries and infer anything about your risk of having a fatality.
1: Yeah, I don't know if this one is best described as uh, beating a dead horse or rubbing it in. or But once, once you've established that all of your movement is random, then of course it's not going to correlate with something real. <laughs> and, and so that's basically what they found, is they went looking to see whether that small percentage of underlying pattern correlates with the fatalities or can predict the fatalities. In terms of statistical methods, there are more things that they could have tried here. So they were just basically looking for a straight relationship, but you can do things like correlation over time and try testing out you know, whether it predicts one month in advance or two months in advance or three months in advance and sort of do a sort of sliding statistical pattern to check for every possibility. That They haven't been thorough to that extent. As I said, once you've established the first bit, this is an inevitable conclusion anyway. When you're looking for a pattern inside noise, the answer is noise.
0: So I think what practically for people who say, um, and I must admit, this is something that I believed at a point in my career, which is, oh well, recordable injuries. It's worth looking at our TRIR because it's a barometer for for our broader management of safety, um, including fatality risk. Yeah, that's just not true. So if people think that they're measuring their recordable injuries as a as a barometer, if you like, of safety, and or as some kind of in, early indication of fatality risk, it's it's not true. If you're interested in fatality risk looking at your recordable injury will give you no insight at best and probably false false confidence at worst. Yes,
1: absolutely. So I, I guess before we just move on to the findings, we mentioned at the start that this is a white paper. It hasn't been peer-reviewed. I'm fairly good at reviewing statistics. I, I spotted a couple of minor errors at the level of typos, but their statistical arguments here are fundamentally sound. They've used the right types of distributions, the right types of models, the right types of tests. They could have been a little bit more thorough in just trying harder to find some sort of thing that TRR uh, predicted, but they tried pretty hard and found nothing.
0: So, Drew, these findings. Let's go through there. Six findings that are sort of called out in the paper. Um, let's let's go through and and some of them we've or most of them we might have mentioned, but we're saying that so maybe listeners can um, pay close attention, because these are all of the arguments around recordable injury rates, you know, they're not associated with fatalities. So this paper, statistically, has, I suppose, we should never probably ask that question again, of whether there's a relationship between recordable injuries and fatalities.
1: This has been asked and answered with multiple data sets. And this is yet another nail in that coffin. No one has ever found a strong relationship between total recordable injuries and fatalities.
0: Andrew, the second is that recordable injury rate movements in recordable injury rates are almost entirely random.
1: Yeah, their work certainly bears this out. I find it rather surprising because I actually would have assumed that the social pressure to have constantly reducing TRIR would create a sort of artificial stability and that there would be a pattern there caused basically by distortions in reporting and distortions in classification Maybe it's just that their industry partners are unusually honest in giving them you know, unfiltered data.
0: Yeah, Andrew. So, recordable injury rates cannot be represented as a single point estimate. So, saying your rate is one is not something that makes any sense.
1: Yeah. So, so that's not an empirical finding. That's just a mathematical statement supported by their mathemat- their explanations in this paper.
0: Andrew, the um, your recordable injury rates are not precise. So, if you're reporting a recordable injury rate with one or two decimal points, it's, I suppose it's unlikely to be, um, well, it's it's, it's not going to make any statistical sense to be reporting decimal places around your recordable injury rates.
1: To be precise, if you have 30 million work hours, you're allowed to go to one decimal place. If you have 30 billion work hours, you're allowed to go to two decimal places. But otherwise, yeah, no decimal points.
0: Okay, very good. So some very large organisations are probably going to be able to keep their two decimal places If recordable injury rates are used to reward performance, then we're actually rewarding random variation. So one year, randomly, rates will go down and people get a bonus. And the next year, rates will go up and people won't get a bonus. But neither of those two years, you've actually rewarded people for anything other than random variation in their statistics. Or, I suppose, Drew, maliciously, the ability to creatively classify the incidents that they do have.
1: Yes, if you get someone who's regularly earning those bonuses, this is also a way of saying that that's pretty much certainly fraud. If anyone's being honest, they're going to go up and down randomly. So you're either rewarding random variation or you're rewarding an ability to rig the statistics. And that's true of any decision we make. It doesn't just have to be a reward decision. If it's a decision about which subcontractor to hire, if it's a decision about which safety program to persevere with, those decisions are just a suspect we're making those decisions based on random variation
0: and the final not half positive thing but thing with this, with a glimmer of positivity around recordable injury injury rates the finding says that if recordable injury rates are predictive at all it is only over very long periods of time say 100 months of data so if you look at your recordable injury rates for over 8 years you know there may be a small chance that there might be some hidden predictability in that
1: yeah, what they don't say in this paper is you've got to keep everything else stable. If you make any major changes to your company over those eight years, you've got to start again. So, yeah, keep everything flat for eight years, make no changes, let the injuries happen, and then you'll have good data at the end of it to make a decision using TRIR.
0: So, Drew, they're, they're the six findings, and I think, I, I suppose we're going to have listeners who are going, so what, I knew all this stuff, and and, and maybe maybe there is a bit of a so what, but it is, I suppose... There is a lot of evidence behind this now, and there is a white paper. So if you're actually trying to initiate some change in your organization, now might be a pretty good time to actually pick this up and and remake some of those arguments that you're making to your organization. So the key takeaways that are, the authors offer some key takeaways, Drew. So do we want to, let's go through these and, and throw in some of our own practical takeaways as well.
1: Yep. So number one is just don't use injury rates as a proxy for serious injury and fatality risk. Um, so I think that's a fairly practical one for practitioners is when you put up the, if you have to use injury rates, when you put up the slide, put a title on the slide about your minor injury measurement and then have a separate slide to talk about major injury risk. Just sort of split the two.
0: Yeah. And correct people when they make these claims about the relationship between the two. Don't use recordable injury rates to track internal performance or to compare the performance of companies, projects, individuals or teams. So this is, This is practically going to be hard for a lot of our listeners, I think, inside organizations to say, we're not going to track our safety performance internally using recordable rates. We're not going to compare our contractors um, or pre-qualify our our contractors based on their rates. We're not going to look at one project versus another project, one asset versus another asset. This one here is what companies do with their, this is actually what they do with their recordable injury rates, Drew. and, And the authors here are saying, don't do that.
1: Yeah. Now that that's one that safety professionals may not be able to fight against fully, but at the very least, we can stop making claims ourselves about it. You know, unless we're told to, we can leave them off our resumes. Unless we're told to, we can leave them off our reports. So yeah, at the very least, don't buy into using it for those purposes and don't encourage it.
0: And so, Drew, if you have to do some of that reporting, then safety professionals should change how they communicate recordable injury rates like reporting the range and not reporting the decimals so for example if we want to compare two sites you might say this this site has a trir of two or three which is actually a range of zero to five this is three or two and it's actually a range of zero zero to five so just talking about ranges and saying well all these sites are basically within the same random bucket of you know rates so takeaway four well, takeaway four was missing, Drew, you said that. And and I sort of, first of all, made a claim about something peer review might have picked up. And I don't want to don't want to undervalue the peer review process because it's very good. But it's also helpful at picking up a few peer review tends to be a pretty detailed process. So or it might have been an author joke. I don't know. Just about statistics and numbers um, to leave <laughs> yeah, it out. So, Haven't considered
1: that possibility. Uh, takeaway five is don't use injury rates to measure performance of interventions. So, you know, just because your injury rate's gone down doesn't mean that your intervention's been a success. And I guess just because it's gone up doesn't mean throw away the intervention. Find some other way to measure performance.
0: Yeah, Drew, I might jump in now before we go on to number six because we talked, I think it was on the podcast last week, about communication campaigns and the dependent variable there was injury rates. And what does this mean for the academic world? Because injury rates are often used as a dependent variable. They're often, they're used a lot in in safety science research. What does this report mean for, I suppose, how you design research in the academic world?
1: David, I've been thinking about this a fair bit recently because we've had a couple of listeners provide feedback and sort of take us to task for the fact that we're generally critical of injury rates. But then we sometimes talk positively about studies that have injury rates as one of their measures. So I I think there's a couple of definite things we can say in some grey areas. The The definite thing would be if we're talking at the level of epidemiological studies, so we're talking across whole injuries or whole populations or whole countries, and we're using that level of data, then injury rates are reasonably meaningful. We have enough data points, we have large enough numbers that we get away from these statistical validity problems. If we're talking about single companies, then injury rates are just as bad for research as they are for any other company decision. A company's got to be hurting an awful lot of people for that to show up as a difference in a trial about whether an intervention works or not. So, you know, whether it's in an academic paper or a company report, if someone says, "We well, put in this place, this intervention, our injury rate went down. Really, that's probably just random variation.
0: Andrew, I think we also talk a bit about on the podcast about, you know, being clear on the direct mechanism or the direct variable of what your intervention is trying to achieve. And I think that's that sort of flows us into the final takeaway here offered by the authors, which is, that new approaches to safety measurement are needed. So, like I said, you know, what what are the things that we think we're trying to change to create safety and, and seeing if we can measure those things that we think we're trying to change?
1: Yeah, I, I don't blame the authors for not putting out positive suggestions here. That's not the purpose of this paper, but it's a very easy thing to say that they, we need new new approaches to measurement. It is much, much harder to find what those new measures should be because every measure has one of those two problems. Either it has the exact same statistical problems of injury rates that we just don't have enough data points, or it has the construct validity problems that we don't really have this proven connection to safety. And so, yeah, I agree with you, David, that I think measurements based around the mechanisms are really important. Um, And what we mean by that is if you're like measuring the effectiveness of your inductions, then don't worry about whether they're going to change the rate of injuries. Inductions are intended to work by the mechanism of changing people's awareness of hazards so measure whether your induction has changed people's awareness of hazards or not and just accept that as a metric
0: and then i think drew does it does it leave us in an infinite loop or an infinite leap of faith because even that thing that you said there that that awareness of hazards we're still making an assumption that awareness of hazards is something that actually creates safety yeah, So still that there's still a link that's always going to be missing.
1: This is actually the point that Eric Holnagel was originally trying to make in Safety 1 and Safety 2, which is so misunderstood, is that that infinite loop can only really be solved, at least in Holnagel's view, by stopping saying that safety is about the number of injuries and just recognising that it is a futile path to ever actually be able to measure safety with that end-to-end connection. From a more pragmatic point of view... You can build the chain step by step. So you can look at whether your inductions create hazard awareness, you can look at whether hazard awareness changes workplace behaviours, you can look at whether changes in workplace behaviours change injuries. You're never going to be able to end to end in one study but you build up each of those steps carefully and then you have a strong evidence-based chain for why good inductions might improve safety
0: outcomes. Right, Drew, the, the authors finally conclude that recordable injury rates have remained, I'm sort of quoting here, the most pervasive measure of safety for 50 years. And this study has demonstrated a basic need to test all of our assumptions in relation to safety management. And I think that's, I suppose, what we try to do each week on the podcast is, is test a lot of these assumptions. And these authors this week did a good job in a fairly accessible format of um, of answering that question of the statistical validity of recordable injury rates. So Drew, what what would you like to know from our listeners?
1: I guess I'm curious this time about the nature of this particular paper. I think this is the first time where we have been a little bit behind the curve in that people were already reading and discussing the paper before we tried to sort of draw attention to it. So I'm interested in whether people saw the paper when it came out, whether they felt inclined to read the whole thing. How did you find the non-academic style? Um, Even though it was fairly heavy on the statistics, was this style more like an industry report, easier to read, and you know, easier to follow. And what other safety topics would you like to see addressed in this sort of white paper format? Um, maybe we can get some other people to write you know, similar reports of similar quality.
0: So before we wrap up, Drew, a couple of our listeners asked asked for our views on this particular paper. I think they're asking for for us to run a credibility lens over it as a white paper. So drew, I suppose your your overall, I mean, you're, you're an editor of a safety, safety science journal, um, peer reviewer. What, what would be your sort of overarching messages to people about when they're reading this, the, the credibility of what they're reading?
1: Yeah, if you find the statistics hard, I think it's safe in this case to just sort of blur over the statistics and trust that they have been done properly and focus on the clearly stated conclusions that come out of the analysis that they've done. The findings are supported by the work and the takeaways come directly from the findings.
0: Bit of a free challenge to our listeners. I sort of encourage, <laughs> encourage, dare, um, challenge any of our listeners to basically prepare yourself a little summary PowerPoint slide of um, this particular paper and and the the findings and the takeaways, and go present that to your management. And if you do that, tell us how it went.
1: Oh yeah, I think there are some real gems in there of good ways of explaining things. I think just a couple of the figures and examples will just be very easily translatable for people to take and explain within their own organizations. Our question for this week was, are TIR statistically valid and what does this mean? Our answer?
0: Well Drew, our answer is no they really aren't and we should really stop using them. If we have to use injury statistics which we shouldn't advocate for, at the very least we should stop pretending that they're precise and report them in ranges and in whole numbers and really not pay too much attention to them unless they move um, outside the range of kind of statistical randomness.
1: So that's it for this week. We hope you found the episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. As always, send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com or contact us on LinkedIn.